Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us on the Spirit of Time podcast. This is Matt. I'm actually flying solo or sort of solo. I have a guest co-pilot today in the form of a, uh, a guest. Greg is not able to make it today, but we've had a long planned recording session with none other than Mike Stockton from FortelloWatches.com. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you coming on. How are you? I'm well, Matt, and thank you so much for, for having me. And how are you today? I'm actually very well. It's been it's been a really relaxing weekend after a couple of highly stressful weeks. I'm kind of buckling up. My my wife is diving in for two or three weeks of intense work on her side, you know, career wise. So I'll probably be doing a lot of uh, you know pinch hitting and and grocery shopping and whatnot over the next few weeks. But you know, the last this is kind of the the last couple of days of quiet before the storm. It's it's a gorgeous California day out here. Um, we've got a time offset. You're in Florida, and I'm in California, so it's still it's basically late afternoon, early evening. Hasn't been ridiculously hot, um, which is nice. And I've got a great beer, and I've just basically been chilling and watching Formula One and and doing chores around the house and not much else. How about you? Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, I just got in from uh, Germany yesterday kind of late afternoon so today was the first full day here and it is quite hot but that's to be expected in the uh on the humid side of the world here in the united states and it was a long day at the pool with uh, our seven-year-old daughter and that's just the kind of thing you do when you have a seven-year-old so a lot of pool time ate some good seafood today and drank a few beers by the pool so yeah, all, all's well. Happy for a little bit of vacation here. Like you, been busy lately, so nice to get away. Oh, that's fantastic. I actually, I was a seven-year-old in Florida, and I, I remember a lot of time by the beach, a lot of time uh, by the pool and, and doing stuff outside and, and playing golf with my grandfather. And I didn't drink beer yet, but it was a, a great time in my life. I kind of envy you. Yeah, well... I, it's funny, you know, that, that seven-year-old age, I, I still remember um, some friends when I was working in Detroit who were on an expat assignment from Europe and they'd booked this huge uh, trip to Disney, you know, spent thousands of dollars and tickets and everything. And they had seven-year-olds and five-year-olds and they got down here and all the kids wanted to do was go to the pool. So they could have stayed in Michigan and <laughs> gone to a hotel with a pool. But yeah, so... Just, just relaxing. So yeah, very nice to catch up with you. So cool. Well, yeah, it feels like this is a, a long overdue meeting. Well, Hey, you know, we can kind of dive right into it again. The dynamic is a little bit different because I'm, I'm not with Greg today. So usually we would kind of compare notes on what we've been doing or following up on previous episodes and things like that. We don't have to do that stuff. Why don't we just get right into the wrist check and poor check? What is in your glass and what is on your wrist? Yeah. So 
In my glass, I'm drinking directly from the bottle here. I've got a bottle of Anchor Steam beer. And whenever I come to the U.S., uh, if, I'm, if I'm at home, one of the first things I do is head to the liquor store. That doesn't sound really good, does it? But <laughs> I, I go to pick up some something that I've either you know just had a hankering for. And Anchor Steam, I have fond memories of this beer, and I found a six-pack today, so... Drinking that, and then in reserve, depending on how long we go, I've got a uh, bottle of Maker's Mark 101 staring at me. So we'll see if we get to that or not. Oh, that's and, yeah, uh, that works. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's a lineup. So, and then on the wrist, um, I am wearing the new to me, uh, brand new Breitling Super Ocean 42. So this is the one that just came out, I guess, a couple weeks ago. This is the slow chrono lookalike. Yeah, it is, and mine is—it's um, blue, so it's a really a dark blue that, depending on the lighting, can almost look black, which of course is the original color. And it came on bracelet, which I did bring with me. But sometimes in this heat, I just like something lightweight, something that's well. The the bracelet is very easily adjusted, but I I just like it on the tropic right now and. It's a nice watch. I, I really like it. I think it's um, certainly had a share of polarizing type comments, you know, more around uh, the movement department, but it's a watch that I was a little bit close to during its development and therefore I'm a bit biased, but uh, I, I really like it. And I think it for Breitling, uh, I wasn't a huge fan of the prior Super Ocean and this gives them something distinctive now. Breitling is a brand I I really like. It's one of the um, probably one of the two or three brands that I remember most being on my radar when I first became aware of watches beyond you know like Armatron or uh-huh. you know a cheap Casio. I'm in my fifties, and I mean I think my first watch was probably around 1980, and it was you know a little by modern standards, basically a little you know kind of pseudo disposable uh, you know, quartz digital thing, but the first watches that I really became aware of and, uh, were cemented in my memory were, you know, like the tag F1, you know, Uh watches, the tag Heuer, you know, from the late eighties, the kids who had a little bit of money in high school had those. I remember seeing those in GQ. Um, and, uh, the the Breitling, basically the Navitimers and the then new, this is again, like late eighties, uh, aerospace, you know, I, oh, yeah. my dad, my dad was a flight instructor. I grew up flying with him and we had, we, you know, took a subscription to AOPA, the aircraft owners and pilots association. Oh, okay. And I, I would see those ads. There'd be, you know, the full, you know, rear, um, glossy ad on the back, you know, back outside cover of the magazine for like the, the OPA dial or AOPA, however you want to say it, uh-huh. different people say it different ways. Um, Breitling has been one of those brands that's really near and dear to my heart. And those watches I think are, and they're, they're so good now, but those watches are really cool. I don't think 36 millimeter is going to work with that design, but the 42, Mm. it's just too tight a a dial aperture, but I've seen those watches. They're really, really cool. I like them a lot. That's a great pickup. Yeah. Thanks. And I had, uh, I'd seen him, I guess it was like the day after they came out. I, I walked down to the AD in Frankfurt and I looked at him through the window and they had uh, 
some different sizes. And honestly, between the 42 and the 44, I knew the 44 would fit kind of, but I just wouldn't wear it all the time. And I was really looking for a good everyday diver, uh, you know, something in the vein of, of I, I own a, a 14060M from 2011 and it it's at the point now it's never been serviced. And I think I don't want to take it in the water until I get it serviced. And uh, I like having a nice robust diver and this, this is standing in beautifully. It, it's, it's a nice thin watch and pleased with it. Gotta say. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think they, they hit a home run with that. I don't care what people are saying about the movement. I mean, it would be, it would be nice if it had the, the quote unquote, you know, in the house. Yeah. Yeah. That the in-house shared, whatever it is. But, um, on the other hand, the, the movement that's in it is going to be serviceable for a long time by a lot of people. So that's perfectly fine. Yeah. That's, that's so, perfect. Yeah. So, so how about you? What are you drinking, uh, tonight and what, what's on your wrist? So I also have beer, by the way, nice choice with the, uh, the anchor steam beer. That is like the, the San Francisco's finest. Um, but I've got the, uh, the Vine Stefaner Pilsner. This mm. would, um, I, there's a number of these beers or beers that are adjacent to this that would easily qualify for a desert Island beer for me. So, you know, and just, you know, throw a, a dart at the dartboard, Vine Stefaner or Paul Lahner or Augusteiner or whatever. They're, they're all phenomenal. And I've got this in the, uh, you know, just in the, the little, uh, 12 ounce pour glass here. So here's to hey. you, Prost. Yeah. Prost. Zum Wohl. Perfect. Yeah, nice German beer there. Fine. Stefaner is a good one. So yeah, it is absolutely. And then on the wrist, I, this is also sort of apropos. So this is the, the Tudor Black Bay GMT. Ah. So I love this watch. And the reason I wore this today is because I was kind of inspired by the Fratello. Uh, so you guys do the installment, right? Of the Sunday morning showdown. Uh-huh. And that's a, a repeating feature. And the most recent one is the Tudor Black Bay GMT. So basically this watch versus the Longines Spirit Zulu Time. Oh, it was just today, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, I sort of, I, I really like that Longines, by the way. That green, um, it took me a while to figure out why it was visually that it was so appealing to me. And I think what it was is because it's like the, it reminds me of like the ultimate FOMO watch from a year or two ago, the, you know, the La Venture Transatlantique GMT. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a very similar kind of colorway. I was like, oh yeah, that's that's what it is. But um, the reason I wore this is because of how much I appreciate what is presented in those showdowns. And that is um, actual sort of detracting. I don't know what the word is, but you know, uh, uh, critical comments, right? Correct. Correct. And it's, um, you know, even, even from somebody who's basically defending a watch against another watch that they like, but it's basically, it's, it's honest commentary. And there was something in there, you know, and this is maybe kind of foreshadowing. Maybe we'll talk about this in a, in a minute. But um, the, and I don't remember who had the. I didn't write it down. But who who took which side of the the argument? But the the writer who was in favor of the tutor basically said, "Hey, the Zulu is you know this Zulu time watch is great. I just don't know how relevant it's going to feel to somebody who buys it today in say 
and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but in like six months or a year, is it going to have that timeless kind of feeling in your heart so that it sticks the way the tutor might? And that's, to me, that was like a really, um, a very real, very, you know, kind of a powerful assessment that people should take into consideration when they're, you know, buying a watch that is, you know, not a, a $200 G-Shock, you know, you should kind of have a sense of like, Hey, is this piece going to have staying power in my collection? And I don't see a lot of that kind of commentary in other blogs. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess I've been with Fratello now for long enough that uh, I like the fact that we're encouraged to be pretty frank and honest and, and open about what we think about watches. And, you know, you can do that without being nasty, of course. And, but those articles really set up, set up that type of commentary perfectly because it's, you know, you can be honest about a watch and to some degree you can kind of dig it at your opponent there and make those comments without it being so directed towards the watch because it is opinion. Um, but it, it's, yeah, like I said, it, it's one of the things I like about Fortello. And then, you know, when it just comes to watches in general, the fact that we're here on a podcast talking about watches tells you how, <laughs> How, how crazy we, we've all gone about these these crazy things that sit on our wrists that are, for all intents and purposes, pretty antiquated, right? And you're right. We, we probably should give it a lot of thought before buying, which is something maybe over the last few years, some of us don't anymore. We, we just make these these quick purchases. And you're right. Six months later, you look at a watch that is sitting in the, in the safe most of the time. So... Yeah. Well, I tell you what, we'll, let's put a pin in that and we'll, we'll to use the corporate buzzword bingo jargon of the day. We'll, we'll circle back on that in a minute because I think that does bear some discussion, just kind of the, the Fratello and its place in the, um, in the firmament, I guess, of the watch blogosphere. But why don't we, if it's okay with you, can we do like a, a rapid fire, kind of a warm up series of questions and just kind of get a sense of, of where your head is at on certain topics? Sure. I mean, this feels like I'm I'm headed into a uh, like a, a two day corporate meeting, and I've got to start with an icebreaker here, right? That's right. That's right. Why don't you get up and uh, tell us tell us where you're from? How long have you been with the company? <laughs> Three, what is your two, what's your current role? Three truths and a lie, or something like that. And, oh God, yeah. <laughs> I I can't. <laughs> I will talk about it offline, but I so I do a recommendation. We do a recommendation kind of at the end. I have a recommendation for you for a feed. It is. Um, I, I will talk about it after. It's hilarious. It is okay. It is so perfect for what you just said. Just remind me. Um, okay, so let's start with this. Uh, favorite German tool watch brand? Oof. Uh, you know, what comes to mind right away is Zen. Uh, that's probably the most popular one. And they're in Frankfurt, so that, that's home for me. And... Uh, I really like their watches. I, I was, I've always found them really attractive. And then coming from the U.S., where it used to be really tough to get them, uh, it, it was just such a nice thing to be able to walk to their to their headquarters, basically, and check them out. So, yeah, that's that's the brand for me. Oh, I think that's that's probably the rightest, the first among equals of right answers. 
I, you know, I, I have a real soft spot for Damasco as well, mm-hmm. but you know, also there's nice. no, ar- yeah. yeah, there's no arguing that Zinn is by far like the broader portfolio of different kinds of watches and different design language. Yeah. I think, um, you know, you have Laco, Stova, uh, okay. Nomos, not necessarily tool type watches. Right. But for me, the, the thing with the German watches, and it's not a bad thing, but yeah, they, they can have that very Teutonic look, right? That's very clinical and sterile. And I've got a few in my collection, but at some point, I, I must say that, yeah, I, I like a little variety. So they're, um, they can... Samey, samey is not the right word, but uh, they're, they're de- you, you can look at a watch and know that it's German, typically. Yeah, I think there's, um, but depending on the type of watch, right? You know, there's certain archetypes, you know, in a, a kind of a stylized Flieger. Yep. You know, you can you can tell what those are, you know, the, the hardened steel dive watches, you know what those are. Absolutely. No, that's super cool. I, I totally envy that by the way, being able to, to go to Zen. I'd, I'd love to be able to deal with them directly. How cool would that be? All right then. So next question, speaking of beer, we both have beer poured <clears throat> Kolsch or Hefeweizen. Oh. Well, I would say Kolsch, right? I, I mean, and that's a funny beer. There are a lot of Germans who who basically liken it to urine. So, or, or say that it's not real beer. Um, of course, if you're from Kolm, that you don't say that. But uh, if you're from Düsseldorf, you most definitely say that. Um, if I can pick a C, my 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 hard uh, hard and fast choice always is Hellas. Uh, that's my favorite. Uh, it, it's just fantastic. And if I have to choose one, it's Tegern's Air. So I don't know if that's so, I don't think that's available in the US, but it's a fantastic Hellas. It's super smooth and yeah, you can find yourself in trouble pretty quickly with those. No, that's cool. In fact, I'm glad you you went the C option because I probably should have done that. I could have easily done like the one, two, three, four. Um, all right. All right. That's, I think that's highly respectable. Okay. So this is going to be a little bit more, this question, I guess, takes some explaining. So when I think of Miami, I've for, I lived in Florida for a little bit. I've traveled through Miami a number of times. I've been to Miami several times for work. Um, it's an amazing place. Is there an, an analog to Miami in Florida? Is there some place that has a similar energy in terms of like, you know, the food, the culture, that kind of thing. If you, if you Oof. wanted to go and experience that, but didn't necessarily want to go into the, you know, the big crowd, the glitz, the, the expense, is there anywhere else or do you only get that in Miami? I mean, Miami's unique, right? Because it's, um, for whatever reason, well, not for whatever reason as the international airport. So it is where people go. And I'm from about 45 minutes North and we actually didn't go into Miami too much growing up. Uh, of course I go there more as an adult now. Um, married to a European and of course she wants to go to Miami and there's not much like it. I I will say that over time elements from Miami or, or people have moved up North, you know, to more, to less crowded areas. So Fort Lauderdale, which is now crowded, but going up into Palm beach. So the good thing is you can get a lot of the, 
whether it's Cuban food or some of the culture that's on the water, you can get that in other places. There's not much exactly like Miami in terms of South Beach and some of those areas. So Little Havana, it's pretty unique. It is. I got to tell you, I don't like dealing with the traffic down there. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really go. But for me, Fort Lauderdale is, is more my is more my home. That's really where I spent a lot of time as a kid. So, gotcha. Well, that's kind of why I ask. You know, for people yeah. like I'm, I'm also about avoiding the crowd when I can, and so that that would be sort of my motivation, or maybe other people's interest in getting something like Miami Light. If, if that thing existed, well, you just mentioned Cuban food and this is literally going to be my next question. When you get off the plane, you're coming back from Germany, you're coming back home. What kind of food do you crave? Is there anything that you go for immediately? Oh, hundred percent. There's two, uh, divey raw bars that I go to down here. So there's, uh, the whale's rib and Deerfield and then Papa's raw bar and lighthouse point. And those two places over a two week period, I'll probably go to each two or three times. And whether it's stone crab season or oyster season, clams, all that good stuff, and just super cold yellow beer, as we say. <laughs> but that's what I crave because Germany's landlocked, you know, basically, and seafood is either really expensive or it's, you know, it's not coming from really close to their stickerfish. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just not good. So, would you like some fried herring? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's not the same. I mean, we just had swordfish tonight, and I got to tell you, oh, it, th- that's the kind of thing I crave. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, good answer, good answer. All right, so this is going to be a little bit more random, but what is the best supercar to cruise around Miami? If you wanted to be big pimping in Miami, what is your supercar of choice? Wow. So I think if it's a modern car, you know, it's got to be a Lamborghini to to me. There's no other. And I think, you know, the Countach was really like the, that was, that was Miami, you know, white, white one, probably with the door, one door up. And if, um, yeah, I, I think it would be that. And otherwise, like, I also think about like uh, vanilla ice and his slant nose uh, <laughs> Porsche Turbo, right? So it's uh, yeah, something something loud, basically. So I I lean very heavily into my '80s roots, and when I was a kid, I think I was uh, no, I don't think I was a freshman in high school. I think this was maybe what '84, '85, and Miami Vice was on Miami TV. Vice. I I went to my homecoming dance with like the you know, kind of the unconstructed, you know, linen jacket, like the wide, the wide shoulders and the, uh, a pastel shirt. You know what I mean? It was like a coral pink and, you know, it was a light colored jacket and yeah, it was, uh, I don't know. I was either that, you know, a DEA agent in disguise in my own mind or, you know, some kind of a a Colombian Coke Lord or something. Oh yeah. that's the Countach is, is, I think that's about the most correct answer. Does the answer change though? If you're in Frankfurt, like if you want to tool around Frankfurt, what's the car? Well, 
you know, Frankfurt, of course, is a big banking city, and I've been in traffic next to Bugatti's there, which is is pretty wild. Um, I always feel like Ferraris were were the go to choice, but you know, it's very similar to watches where limited things have skyrocketed in value over the last five years or so, and they're all these limited edition Porsches, these GT3s and RSs are they're untouchable. So that's what people aspire to there. So I think when in Germany, you got to go German and, and these, these types of vehicles are huge. Of course, the, the big AMG type supercars are, are huge there too, but Porsche, it's kind of always the answer in Germany. Yeah. How can you go wrong? Although I guess my choice would be probably like a slammed grayed out RS6 you know, just completely stealth, um, you know, throw the skis on the top. It's like, oh yeah, this is just a family wagon. Nothing to see here, folks. Yeah. I've, I've been on, um, well, I've been in front and then was very quickly getting over, uh, and, and I've been behind RS sixes before on the Autobahn and they make a great noise. The tailpipes are massive. They're they're just so cool with those big flared fenders, and that's probably my favorite of the uh, the Uber wagons over there. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to drive a really fast BMW wagon over there, uh, and I like wagons. I really do. I, I I find them so cool. I so they're they're hard to find now in the modern lineups of any of the manufacturers here in the states, and everybody's making you know instead of instead of like a an A four Avant, now you've got to get a Q five if you're yeah. an Audi person. If you instead of getting like a uh, a five series wagon, now you're going to get an an X five, and to me it's not the same. I mean I don't no. dislike those cars, but I would much rather have you know the conventional estate. Um, you know, and if I had the money to drop on something like that, to me, that is, that's the ultimate, just like flex bruiser, super fun. So that's cool. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that you have that, that, and the BMW that to me, that if I could project that onto you, that would be the car I would have picked for you. So that's cool <laughs> to hear. Yeah. Right on. Hey, so speaking of, of cars, did, are you an F1 guy? You know, I, I do like it. I must say I don't subscribe to Sky over there and they carry, I want to say like 70 or 80% of the races. Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't know why I refuse, but I kind of refuse. Uh, but I do follow it. You know, I'll watch it. I'll listen to it live on YouTube or something like that. And as a, as an Alpine owner, I do follow the Alpine team and they're, they're sort of, mildly competitive but not really <laughs> so I, I i follow alonzo and ocon so well they've got great personalities no i mean today so it's sunday you know and we're obviously we're time delayed so i uh i dvr'd it but mercedes had a good result so oh yeah they were they were really back in this race weren't they yeah yeah it was good to see i think you know they made a good hire bringing russell over i think mm -hmm. he's gonna be good as as Lewis, who I really like a lot, is starting to age out. Or if he decides to go do other things, if the car is not going to be absolutely competitive in the next two years, we'll have to yeah. see. But F1 is, is exciting again, which is cool. Um, I was fortunate enough in the early 2000s to go 
to the Indy races several years in a row uh, when, when it came back. And to be fair, it wasn't really that competitive in that period. And it was basically Schumacher and, okay, I, I guess uh, it was at Hockenden a little bit, but it, it was not overly competitive like it is now. It's fun. It's fun to watch now. Yeah, the last couple seasons have been really good. I mean, I know, you know, Red Bull had a, a boring run, you know, where they were predictably, you know, on top and, and Mercedes too, but it just feels like now things are a little bit more shaken up. So that's cool. Yeah. Anyhow, well, hey, if it's okay with you, why don't we kind of, again, let's, uh, I'm making the air quotes here, uh, circle back to that topic we sort of alluded to. I mean, we we touched on this briefly, but just the state of watch media, online watch media, um, I'll, I'll come out at the risk of sounding like a complete sycophant fangirl insert, you know, adjective here. Um, I'm a huge fan of Fratello, frankly, because of the fact that it, it does seem like there is that adversarial content and, you know, there is a, uh, uh, not, you know, not an overtly kind of commercial element to it. Um, I'm just curious if, if you're willing to kind of talk about this, I know this is a little bit delicate because obviously you participate at Fratello, but you know, what are, what do you think as somebody who's been into watches for a while? I mean, we, let me just kind of back up for a second. We probably both have experienced the phenomenon of running into somebody who's in our hobby, but who's really been in it and participating in it for maybe the past two to three years. And that's fine. You know, no gatekeeping or whatever. But f- for that person, you know, maybe the concept of like wading through thousands of pages of blog posts and posts on Fora and things like that is they don't <laughs> really know what that's about. And they've only ever seen Hodinky as what it looks like now and that kind of thing. I'd love to just kind of get your thoughts is how how do you think the blogosphere is, is changing for good or for bad as far as watches go? Yeah. I mean, that's a big question and I need to think about this. I guess I've been now with Fratello for something like seven years or so. Yeah. Seven or eight years. And a lot has changed since then. You know, it's really incredible. When I joined, we were, you know, there were a handful of us out there, at least of the bigger sites. You know, there was us, there was Blog to Watch, Hodinky, Worn and Wound, um, Monochrome. I, I, I'm not sure when they were founded, but they came on, you know, around that time. And and then you had, like you said, you had forums. And since then, it, it's exploded. And I think, and, and it's not only... Um, sites like ours, right? When, when I get invited to an event by a brand, I'm starting to see more and more people from the YouTube world show up. So they don't even have a site where they write anything. They don't podcast. They don't do, you know, they don't do anything else other than YouTube. And, you know, you've seen these kinds of folks, they walk around with like a hat on that says like their channel <laughs> and, uh, I have to admit to you, I don't watch a lot of YouTube. I don't I feel like I'm, I'm a dinosaur in that regard. I will every so often. Um, but so, so that's changed. And then, yeah, it, it's, 
like a lot of things, it, it started as a real grassroots um, venture for a lot of sites and it has turned into business for a lot of sites. And I don't really bemoan that because if, if you get folks together or you want to make a go of it or, or actually make a living of something, you've got to think about how to, well, becoming commercial is just part of the game. Um, how you do it and, and to what extent, these are all choices. But I, I think most people who, especially who take digs at, at sites that are, you know, have a shop or something like that, don't really realize that, you know, 10 people or 15 people on staff, A, generally don't work for free. <laughs> and these articles or whatever content they're creating doesn't write itself. And it's also not free hosting a site, all these kinds of things. And um, yeah, so, so that, that it has to be a business. And I also think that, um, <laughs> you know, the other thing that's changed and, and COVID I think has even, has even furthered this, but when I got into it, brands, to be very frank here, didn't care at all about online. They did not care. They were all about paper. Yeah. All about printed magazines. And you sound like you travel a decent amount, but I would go to airport lounges and I would see these watch magazines there and you know, I'd be half out of my mind, jet lagged and everything. And I'd kind of look at these things and I'd just leave it there because it was all old news. And it wasn't like it was badly written. The pictures weren't bad. But it was just old news and it just blew me away that these magazines were getting all the attention from the brands. But I think COVID changed that, right? People weren't going out, people were going online more and it kind of hastened a change that was coming anyway. Uh, so, you know, with more brand attention, I think, I think publications have changed as well, but you know, maybe to speak a little bit specifically about your, your comment around the fact that at least at Fortello, we do tend to be critical. I think that there are other sites that are critical as well. I have to say like the folks over at Warren and Wound are pretty good at that as well. Um, there are sites that are, you know, we're, I'm very, very lucky to have fallen in with a group of people who truly love watches. I've met people at events before who work for big publications that are just focusing on watches. And I have to tell you, Matt, they're good writers, but they could just, they just write about anything. They just get sent to go do a story. Yeah. And I'm not the best writer in the world, but I do love watches and that's who I'm surrounded by. Some, some of which maybe are journalists professionally, but we are people who dig watches a lot and we comment heavily to each other about a watch like man really you like that why do you like that or boy that's crazy what are they thinking with that or wow i love that that was an incredible move by them and i think that shows through in what we do and i'm happy when other other publications are like that too because i think that if you've ever seen something that you really enjoy become really popular and then watch it burn out sometimes it burns out because a lot of folks just aren't very true to themselves and people just think, okay, this is a bunch of hot air and it's, it's really, you know, it, it was, it was the emperor that, that had no clothes essentially. And 
yeah. So I said a lot of stuff there. So I'll let you. <laughs> well, no, I think, I mean, all of that is, uh, is very real. I find myself like wanting to reach into the screen and, you know, kind of while I'm, I'm reading Lex writing about Tudor, I'm like, you idiot. Oh my God, you're so stupid. But it's, you know, that's the kind of thing where it's like, oh no, that's, that is, that is what this is supposed to do. Yeah. You know, the, the best writing is supposed to kind of elicit that kind of response. And it's not even the quality of the writing so much, which is not to say that he's not a good writer, but um, it, it's the fact that they'll, you know, draw a line in the sand and, and kind of take a stand and kind of defend it. And I know some of it is, um, you know, a little bit, or at least possibly is a little bit, um, uh, I don't know what the word is. But provocative for being yeah, provocative. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I have no idea in my mind or no, um, no sense that anybody, let's say, has it out for a brand or out oh. for people who are fans of a particular watch. But it's just, hey, this is a point of view. Let's talk about this. And the fact that that exists uh, is something that I really appreciate. You typically only see this, and I'm, you know, not to pick on Hodinkee, but you know, you only see that on Hodinkee really in the past year or two that I've noticed in the comments section, and which gets really wild and woolly. <laughs> but you know, in Fratello, it's kind of right up there, you know, ab- above the fold, you know, first page. You can see that kind of stuff. I think that's fantastic. I'm curious though. You said something, and I don't know if you'd want to again. I don't know. I don't want to put you on the spot, but it seems to me, okay, you've got commentary and commerce at Hodinkee and you have commentary and commerce at Worn and Wound and a lot less so more, you know, much more commentary heavy at outlets like Fratello or a blog to watch. And to some extent, I think monochrome and deployant, I don't read those as often, but the, you know, the other four, like the big four for me, those, that's kind of how they break down. Hodinkee gets a bollocking in, you know, out there and worn and wound does not. And I don't, I don't know why, but I'm, I've, that's just something that I've noticed. It seems like, and I'm wondering, do you think that has something to do with the fact that worn and wound is playing in a more accessible sandbox price wise with a lot of the stuff that they talk about? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. They they also are generally, you know, the, when I think of Worn and Wound, I think a lot about micro brands and and really cool accessible stuff. I think they they've done an amazing job of carving out this corner that, and it's not to say that when they step out of that and do something else, it's bad. But I think they've done a really neat job of of really carrying that area of the market and. You think about their wind-up shows and everything, really successful. Uh, and I do think that I think that's a big piece of it. I think that you know, Hodinkee is a real—they're a juggernaut. Yeah, they're—they've they're, got a huge number of people on staff. They're—they're they're a big company. They've bought you know Crown and Caliber. They're offering insurance. It, it's a whole—that's a whole different ball game. And you know, when you're when you're a company like that you know, people, when you're, when you're big and you're sort of number one in that, that whole, um, market space, people are going to take shots at you. And, and look, I think that 
they take chances. They do things. Uh, they come out with products that, okay, they might not be for me, <laughs> but you know, they, they give it a whirl. And I think sometimes the, the commentary that comes at them, Hey, maybe it's fair. Maybe it is. I mean, we think about, you know, we joke, everybody jokes about the, uh, the travel clock, right? And <laughs> it's, but to some degree, it's like, did you make a joke about that recently? Why do I think I heard somebody drop I, a, a joke I think about I did that with somewhere Balash. recently? Some, some, I think it was on, on yeah. your podcast with Balash. Yeah. Talking yeah. about like the anniversary of the travel clock. No, that wasn't, no, he bought like an alarm, uh, vintage watch and, uh, it's like 500 euros or something. And I told him, Oh, it's a better deal than a travel clock, you know, but, um, but Hey, it, it, it's, I think that when you, when you see moves like that, I, as a watch person who loves reading all kinds of information about our hobby. And if I think 10 years ago, I was, I don't know, what what you're like, but I'm an exhaustive reader and I just love to go and and dig into details and stuff like that. And uh, that wasn't there 10 years ago. And I feel like, okay, a controversial move like that generates a lot of discussion. And it it tells you that, that what we're talking about here is at least bigger on the radar than it used to be. And that people, it, it generates some, some excitement, whether that's positive or negative. So. Yeah, I think that's, that's accurate. Um, and I am like that too. I think there's probably a lot of us like that, right? Where the hunt is the, probably at least half the fun, you know, doing the research, finding out things, kind of validating, you know, your ideas or finding out if you're wrong about something by reading a bunch of you know, other people's comments or, or looking, digging into technical specs or, or what have you. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, but I just, I, I can't help but laugh when I think about the, the travel clock thing. I mean, it's a great object, you know, that it's an amazing thing. It was just, I remember how it was received. I don't remember what the price on it was, but it was, it was pretty like crazy. Five or six grand. So in, in that regard, yeah. I don't think it was an amazing object, but it was, uh, yeah, it was fairly audacious, but Hey, if you don't shoot, you don't score, I guess. Right. So it, uh, you know, good on them. Um, I, I just, uh, I think that when you're in something for a while, you look back on, on the old days, let's call it and everything. It's not just watches, but everything always seems, uh, seems better, you know, the way it used to be. And it's, not necessarily the point I'm making, but if I think about Hodinkee back in the day and just the sort of exhaustive research articles they would do on vintage and, and other pieces, I have to give them a lot of credit. They inspired a lot of people to get interested in, in watches or realize that, oh, okay, there are other dorks like, uh, like me. And <laughs> I, I think that you see them starting to publish more articles or at least some, like I think Cole does a lot of cool investigative stuff. And we try to do a bit of that, maybe not uh, traveling around the world to go to places, but I'm very, very pleased that throughout everything um, we've kept up TBT, which I started years ago uh, on Thursdays about vintage and Thomas writes it now, but 
when I pick up a vintage watch and I write an article just out of nowhere, I'm pretty darn sure it's going to get published in the next week or so. So that's pretty cool. And I like that we still do that because I do think that there's a, a core fan base out there that loves reading about stuff like that versus articles that are just written because they're modern watches and that's really what modern watch companies care about. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I found the, um, and Warren and watch has done Warren and wound, I should say has done something recently that I hope they continue. I think this was a, uh, a Blake Bittner thing, you know, where he, it was a, I don't know what the, the title was of the piece, but it was essentially taking a vintage watch in this case. Um, I want to say he did the Zen EZM one, uh-huh. and I feel like I'm 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 hoping I'm remembering this correctly because this is coming up organically in our conversation. It wasn't part of my research or anything prior, so it's not in my notes. But I think a couple of weeks ago he did a video like a hands on, as if it was a new thing. Uh-huh. Look, looking at it, you know, it, through the lens of like, hey, this is something that is you know, eighteen, twenty, twenty five years old, but treated it like, you know, a new object for a lot of people and reviewed it that way. I think there's, that's a, an untapped kind of gold mine. I, I love the series of articles that you guys do and different people do it where it's like dear blank, fill oh. in the watch brand name, bring back the blank, fill in the model name. That's a formula that works. I would love to, you know, on on this podcast and, you know, on our, our watch pod Alliance with bro dinky and wrist cheese radio and, uh, you know, with Spence and buzz and Evan, at, um, you know, whiskey and watches to maybe talk about that kind of thing as well. Cause there's plenty of watches that have been discontinued or that, you know, just kind of went by the wayside that could come back. So I love content like that. I think you're absolutely right about Hodinkee. The best of Hodinkee is probably still the best. Um, you know, there's just more, maybe there's more chaff to sort through to get to the wheat, but you know, you, you bring up Cole Pennington. He's, uh, somebody we've had on the show before. I'm a huge fan of his work. All of his stuff is still great and it does not feel commercial, which is nice. Yeah. I'm not opposed to the commercial stuff. I feel like as an older person, I understand fully what I'm looking at, you know, when they show me stuff that's kind of meant to sell watches, I just wish there was maybe less of that. Anyhow. Yeah, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, if you're writing for one of these sites, and and I will tell you a couple, couple like, behind-the-curtain things. Um, when I was doing TBT, when I started it, and then I also had for a while this column, Risk Game or Crying Shame. I don't know if you remember that. But I, oh, 100%, yeah. <laughs> You know, when you write an article that, that publishes weekly um, and you start out doing it for fun, it, it can become like work, and that, that's tough. Um, so th- there's – I think that th- these, these types of series, it's good that people like them, but then, then the worst thing – not the worst, but sometimes you write an article about like a really obscure watch – and you feel like you make some really cool points in there and there are people who read it, right? But it's amazing. The traffic just absolutely pales in comparison to 
another article about how you can't get Rolexes. <laughs> so it, it, it is frustrating, you know, it, 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 it can be, but that's, at the end of the day, you got to write something that you're happy to write about and you feel good about. And, you know, if, if four people write in and, and tell you they, they found something cool about the article or, or didn't, um, that's what you have to take away from it as a writer, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think there could probably be an entire podcast series about, you know, search engine optimization and how people are are looking for that Rolex thing. I could almost guarantee that I'd probably have 50% higher download traffic if the word Rolex and Mike Stockton appears in the title of this podcast. Um, that's just a fact. It's kind of, eh, it is what it is. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, hey, why don't we put that topic to bed? I have another kind of question for you. Um, I did not, I don't think we specifically talked about this before, but this is something that it just seems like from your writing and from your, you know, your feed and like following what you've done over the past few years, it seems like you really enjoy watches from the nineties and the two thousands. Would that be accurate to say like the early two thousands? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think more and more, you know, that's if you think about periods when you're, when you're growing up or, or at an age where you're looking at things, but can't afford them, those are, that that's, that's that period for me. So, yeah. Yeah. I think accurate, right. Same, same for me. Um, early nineties, uh, you know, for me is going to be, you know, uh, Breitling Omega, uh, Tag Heuer, my first like good watch was a tag Heuer and it, it was a tag Heuer because it was right after I'd gotten married, you know, I was in my mid twenties, late twenties. And my wife was like, Hey, you know, I've got this nice set of rings and all this stuff. And you, you know, you didn't really get anything. I know you like watches. Let's get a watch. Sweet. And because, you know, we were this, you know, young married couple, the tag Heuer was the watch I got because we couldn't at that time stretch the extra 300 bucks to get the 2254. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's, mm-hmm. that's very real. Yeah. Um, and, but that's one of those things where that cements, you know, why Omega was, is an important kind of thing in my mind. Anyway, with that in mind, we did a series of episodes on the three kind of, again, the, I don't know what we're calling it, you know, bro dinky likes to substitute the word crotch for watch and anything. So we've got like the, the crotch pod Alliance or whatever, but um, we did a, a round robin series of episodes talking about watches from different decades. And Greg and I oh, did yeah. the 90s and the 2000s. I'm curious, just off the top of your head, is there any kind of cool stuff from the 90s or the early 2000s that you think is either going to pop or that's still pretty accessible and gettable for people? Um you know, either at reasonable prices or even if, you know, it's a little expensive, but, you know, still represent good value. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's now become common, but it, it's been for some years and I'm certainly not the, uh, the inventor of this, of this view, but I probably in the last eight or 10, probably eight, 10 years ago, I picked up you know, I picked up an IWC Mark 12 and I picked up a same era aqua timer. So the titanium aqua timer, the, the GST model. And for me, that period of IWC is just hard to beat. 
they they were really special watches. They were kind of over-engineered, um, expensive when they were out, really expensive. And they have gone up, but, and, and you know, these aren't $1,500 watches. These are thousands, but they're not 8000 or 10000 And I would tell anyone that those watches are, are really nice to wear because in a lot of cases, they, they're not too big. They're not too thick. Um, the Mark 12 and, and the uh, Ingenieur from the same period, which is actually a very small watch. I think it's like 34, 35 millimeters, but you know has that Genta design case. I think both it and the Mark 12 have that JLC movement inside, which everybody likes to mention can be a, a bit of a maintenance nightmare, but I've never had I've a problem. I've never had an issue with mine. And and the Aquatimer uses a, an Eta, so it's rock solid. Um, that watch, the Aqua Timer to me still looks like it could be made today. I think it's just fantastic. And there are other watches from, from, from the collection. Um, you know, if you go off like on the weird side and we're not talking about stuff that will be valuable, but as an American, and I know they were huge here and you'll, this name will probably resonate with you, but Ebel was such a big deal growing up. <laughs> it was like, I, I knew you were going to say that. I don't know how, but I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's um, it's not a household name, but again, yeah, going back to the whole Miami Vice thing. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a local AD that has one, or at least they did a few weeks ago, and it's it's one of those things where it's just kitschy enough to be cool huh. in terms of you know the the design language of it and. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a very cool thing. I, yeah. people can't see me, but I literally, I have the biggest shit eating grin on my face when you said that. <laughs> it's like, yep, yeah, yep, they, yep. They were so big and they were also really expensive. And, you know, my dad, I think had a quartz one, which was all the rage at that point, you know, the, the sport wave or the 1911. And I remember, so living in Florida, we took a couple of these like five day cruises to the Caribbean and that was, you know, probably like 1990 for me. And Tag Heuer was massive. Breitling was big, like you said, and Ebel. And I kept checking out these, um, well, the chronograph because, and I didn't know it at the time that it had the El Primero inside, but these were like tremendously expensive watches. My dad had no interest in chronographs. And now you look at them and you can get two-tone ones for, 15, 1800 bucks all day long, which just for an El Primero alone to me is, is just take my money type stuff. Um, but if you, if you've ever worn any bell with that wave bracelet, it, the streamliner from Moser basically has the same bracelet on it. And there's a little bit of a, of a, uh, an inspiration there. Uh, but I think they're neat watches. I really do. Um, I, I keep telling myself, yeah, I need to get the El Primero. I just need to do it. So that's one. The other one that I own and I don't, you know, there's a lot of like little known watches from that period from bigger brands like Gerard Perigo made, um, some amazing divers from that period. So if I get this right, I think it is the, uh, is it the Seahawk? Yeah. The Seahawk. So, is it the one with like the odd shaped case? It's kind of asymmetric. 
Well, they had those later. That was but, more recent. Yeah. So they, these um, were the, um, I'm going to try to get you a good, a good reference number here. Um, yeah, the 7000 series. So they made them with, yeah, there were two-tone, blue dials, white dials, and really attractive watch. Uh, here again, not overly expensive. Uh, Ida inside, and they wear beautifully. They really do. Uh, there are tons of brands in this time frame. Do you remember Bertolucci? Do you remember them? From yes. The yeah, yeah, I do. Like they made chronometer rated divers uh, in that period, and they are very 80s looking, kind of Ebel like. But here again, 700 bucks sometimes you find these things for 36, 38, 39 millimeters. I think it's neat stuff. It's sort of, I feel like we're talking like Radwood right now, um, <laughs> these types of watches, but, you know, better value than a lot of crap that people buy right now, frankly. You just gave me an idea for a, a new property, like a, a riff on Radwood, but like Rad Wrist. Or <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, this would be the, um, the perfectly restored, you know, uh, 1991 Corolla hatchback or, so, you know, I'm just making something up, Absolutely. but you know, it is something in its day that was kind of, you know, relatively pedestrian. But when you, when you look back on it, a lot of these things were kind of almost pickled oh, in yeah. terms of how, how well preserved they are. I have a, uh, again, the first kind of, you know, quote unquote, nice watch that I have from the mid to late nineties. And it's uh, taken off of its bracelet. It's a, the Tag Heuer f uh, model 4000. And it's the kind of the media blasted matte stainless steel with gold accents. It's got a, I think it has an actual gold bezel. Is this that link one that you have on the leather? No, it's it, it's not a link, but I do have it on on leather. That's the one you're thinking of. Yeah. It's got like the little soda ovoid indices. Yeah. It's awesome. And and yeah, the, the Mercedes handset. And then it's got the... Um, the bezel with, you know, kind of the, the split logo and mm. it's, you know, in, in the, in the bright green and red kind oh, of, yeah. you know, Italian, it, it reminds me of like a, a pizza margarita kind of thing. And I, I wore that watch every day for a decade and it still looks perfect. And it, you know, there's some of these, there's watches out there that are like that, that you can probably get for 300 bucks. And it's, yeah. I want to say that's a 2892. It might be a 24, but it's pretty thin. And, um, you know, stuff like that is, is out there. There's lots of stuff. I love your Abel mention. That's perfect. Yeah. If you go on, um, it's a horrible idea by the way, but if you go on eBay and look up tag Heuer, diver or vintage diver it, it it is a proper rabbit hole because you know you click on a link and then below it gives you like 10 suggestions on other stuff and you're like oh my gosh i haven't seen that model in like 25 years like i totally forgot about that one and these epic dials that are like uh gray they also look media blasted there's all kinds of stuff and like you said you can pick stuff up for three, 400 bucks. Now I will say the more traditional looking eighties tag Hoyer divers with an automatic movement have started to, um, have started to wake up. People are 
people are no longer giving those away anymore. I feel like. Yeah. I, for a while, I, it seems like it's been pretty fashionable, especially people who are kind of newer, newer comers to the hobby to kind of poo poo tag Hoyer. And there's a lot of stuff that they make is pretty schlocky, Uh but at the same time, kind of looking back, I'm, I'm very happy to have these people go off and pursue other directions and just leave this to us. It's like, yeah, you, you go over there and, and, you know, look for your no date subs from, you know, 1999 or whatever. All, all that tag Hoyer stuff is terrible. Don't ever look at that (laughs) and just don't drive the prices up. Don't wreck it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. But I'm I'm with you. You know, the the quality of those watches, you're right. You do see a lot of them in great shape. And, you know, Omegas, for example, from that period of time, you see a lot that are really bad from a dial perspective or something like, you know, the, okay, maybe they were, I, I don't know why, but like loom rot. And for whatever reason, a lot of those tag Hoyers have, uh, to your point, have aged really well. And I think that um, people often don't remember that a brand like Tag Heuer, that was the aspirational brand, you know, Uh, that was really like, yeah, unless you were coming out of school and, you know, getting a Rolex or whatever for, for graduation, (laughs) Tag Heuer was, all right, I'm going to go work. And if I'm, making a few bucks that that's going to be, that's what I want. I want to tag Hoyer and they're, they were in the same jewelry department as Rolex in a lot of stores, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. The, you know, it was, um, tag Hoyer, Omega, Rolex. If you, yeah. the AD experience was so different. Oh yeah. You, know, you, you go to a, and I'm just picking a, a, a store name, but you know, if you go to a Ben bridge or something like that, 30 years ago, you'd find all three of those right next to each other. And I, I, Rolex is just in such a weird, you know, kind of rarefied air now, but it's a a different thing. That's, and again, that's a whole series of, of shows to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, to, to make one other tag warrior comment. So in 98, when I graduated, I, um, I did buy, about six months after I graduated, I did buy a Rolex and I bought it. This is like at the time they were doing the whole like zero, zero percent financing thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I brought my money in every single month. It was like $180 a month and for my Explorer. And the place that I bought it while I was paying it off over those 12 months, lost their Rolex uh, line. And the reason they said that they, it was taken away is because they carried Tag Heuer. So, and, you know, the way they, they of course, said it was, okay, Rolex saw it as a threat. Now, Rolex probably would have said, no, we, we, we think you're too down market or something. But they were, they were moving a lot of watches. And, you know, like you said, the AD experience, even in 98, was a lot different than today. And not to say Rolexes were cheap, but, you know, okay, there was a big difference in price, but it wasn't like uh, 10 times or whatever it probably is today in some cases. Yeah, no, I, I remember that distinctly. I think my, I have a buddy that I work with who his Submariner 
that he purchased in maybe 2006, uh-huh. seven, maybe even, maybe even 2008, uh, was purchased under retail, <laughs> walked in and got it. Um, you know, yeah, it's just a completely different animal now. Anyway, what Mike, I, I looking at the clock here, we're over an hour. So we should probably, uh, kind of consider getting on glide path to, to land this airplane. Sure. I have one other question and that is, um, is there Greg would want me to ask this, but I mean, in the United States, and you're probably the perfect person to ask, especially being from kind of Miami and being well-traveled, there's a a cocktail culture or subculture here in this country that we're very well aware of. I assume it's elsewhere. Certainly it's in Japan. Do you, do you experience something like that in Germany? Is there a, a cocktail, you know, culture when you're out and kind of enjoying life? you know, going out on the town, that kind of thing in Frankfurt and Berlin, places like that. Yeah. Well, Berlin, first of all, is, I always tell people it's, it's very different from the rest of Germany. And most certainly there you, you have a wild sort of rabid cocktail culture in the more traditional German cities. Uh, it's, I don't know, hard liquor is just not that not that frequently drank. It's a lot of wine and it's a lot of beer, especially if your region is well known for it. Um, so Frankfurt, for example, is not a is not a beer city. I mean, me as a as a huge beer drinker, I moved to the one city in Germany, literally, that is not a beer city. We are a apple wine city. Yep. And yeah, which, which has its derivation and taxation on beer making ingredients. So they, they gave the middle finger to the man and started making apple wine. Um, all that being said, I enjoy my cocktails. And about uh, five odd years ago, I was doing a search for cocktail bars near me. And in fact, I've got a, a, a place I go to once a week uh, called Anthony's there. And it is a fantastic bar. Um, literally, I've been to cocktail bars all over the world and it's my favorite place to go. It, it helps the fact that I'm, it's, it's like a cheers reference, you know, everybody knows your name in there. I, I walk in, but he's, he makes great stuff and he's got a really, really loyal following uh, and, you know, makes a really good cocktail. And then he also makes some really artistic things as well. You know, he's experiments with all that kind of thing. So I feel like it's getting there. You see it more and more. Of course, places like London are big. And then oddly, really oddly, you go to um, countries like the Czech Republic and you've got some of the most renowned bartenders that are either from there working in London or have come back to Czech Republic and open up bars and really wild stuff. Um, So it's there. It's definitely not like America. And I think the other thing is that spirits are you, you, the availability is decent, um, but you think about like the bourbon craze and everything over here in America, and I can get some stuff, but a lot of it I just can't get over there. So it's it's just not there yet. Uh, so it's it's different. So just out of curiosity, I mean, so. Greg is kind of educating me over the past couple of years on the agave spirit side of things. 
is that something that's available in Germany? I mean, are you guys able to get good, good tequila and good mezcal? It's getting better. It really is. Um, I do. I'm trying to think, um, you know, if I think about some decent liquor stores, yeah, they, they've got pretty good selection of tequila. Mezcal is, I always feel like things in Germany, like trend wise come a couple years after America, like Mezcal hit big over here. What three, four years ago, I feel like, um, is like Mezcal bars down in Texas and stuff like that, or in LA and, we, we definitely don't have that, but for example, the bartender I referenced, he's, he's got a great selection and he, he stays up on these things. So, but a lot of times people will come in, especially if they're local, it'll be their first time ever having it. Now he does get a lot of international folks in there who maybe are from LA and are like, Oh, do you have Moscow? Oh yeah, I do. Um, but it's, it's, probably you talk to me in two years and mezcal will be the thing in Germany. So, yeah. Apple wine, mezcal cocktails or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, we, he, he, he does make some pretty cool, um, apple wine infused cocktails and it's a, it's a neat, I like all those like local things. I think that's just kind of a neat, neat part of living somewhere else whether it's overseas or not, and just taking advantage of those local traditions. And apple wine is definitely something, if you come to Frankfurt, you've got to try it. Right on. Well, I'll definitely have to come to Frankfurt at some point. I think if there's any way we can uh, we can hook up, if you can take me to the Zinn store. Oh, yeah. The, You're the always factory, welcome. Or, or what have you, for sure. So I know I would definitely like to do this again with Greg on. We talked maybe a little bit more about, uh, about the food and beverage kind of scene in Germany. Um, but Mike with, uh, with your permission, I would like to just maybe kind of coast into the last thing that we usually do, which is to offer, you know, a little bit of a recommendation and I don't want to put you on the spot. This would be something usually Greg would jump in here, but I'm, I'm curious, actually, instead of maybe just throwing it out there, I'll ask you, this will be a way to kind of disguise the recommendation as conversation. <laughs> Have you seen, it's a relatively new made for Netflix um, title called the gray man. This is Ryan Gosling. Have you? No, but I've certainly seen over the last week, all the advertisements around he and tag Hoyer. So I guess I need to watch that. Yeah. You know, so I just saw this, this would be my recommendation. It is um, it's a little over the top. It is not going to be as, as good. I, I'm curious now, having just seen it, I'd like to look back and do the research to see who was involved with the the production, who may have also been involved with uh, Blade Runner. Because huh. there's there's some of the the music and some of the um like the set pieces and things like that have a, a similar feel and vibe. And Anna de Armas is in it. The the movie's good, it's entertaining. It's um even even for like a you know, shoot 'em up kind of action, uh, uh, espionage thriller kind of thing. It's a little next level, you know, in terms of being kind of, you know, quirky and silly, but the story is pretty cool. I, you know, Gosling does a good job in this kind of role, but for me, the revelation in this is that the, that Anna de Armas character in this one 
is very much kind of like a, a next level. If you saw no time to die, I think mm. that was, that was one of those things where people, in my opinion, came away saying really good things about her role in that. Like she's, she's sustainable as that kind of a character, you know, being cast that way. And she was really good in this as a, uh, as like a, a female kind of co-lead to Ryan Gosling. So if you have a chance to see it, I recommend it. It's fun. You know, don't think of it necessarily as the, the greatest thing ever, but it is, uh, it is fun. And it's kind of cool to see Ryan Gosling doing his thing. And the dude is ripped in this one. It's just <laughs> yeah, but, like, dude, how does he do that? That's a good recommendation because honestly, some of these Netflix movies more often than not now they've got big stars in them, but I'm like, ah, is it going to be any good? Or if for, for whatever reason, we're probably of that same age group where we think, oh, is that a made for TV movie? You know, <laughs> is it, is it going to be worth watching? Uh, but, I'll, but I'll definitely check this one out. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're feeling jet lagged and you're up really early or something, check it out. Yeah. So that's my recommendation. Um, Mike, I'll thank you very one. much. I, okay. oh, you yeah, want me to give it. you Let's one? Do it. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I can't even give you day. two if you want. Um, so the one, because, uh, you mentioned a movie and I thought, all right, is there anything that's really stuck in my head? And there is one. So it wasn't actually on this flight. It was the last flight I took to America. I watched a documentary movie about an hour and a half long called the lost Leonardo. And this is about the Leonardo da Vinci painting that was basically discovered, um, uh, I want to say in, I may get this wrong, Birmingham, Alabama at an auction and bought for really next to nothing. But um, it walks through the people who found this uh, painting and kind of how it, how it went on. And, you know, there, there formed this view that it, that was done by Leonardo da Vinci, which I think there's, I want to say something like 15 paintings that he ever did or, or that remain or something like that. And this is the painting that was bought a few years ago by Saudi royalty for, I think 450 million and it's never been seen since. So the interesting thing about it, and I think it would really interest people who are into watches is that it gets into well, there's a controversy about whether it was really done by him, whether it was done in his workshop by others, or who knows. And at some point, there's a lot of pressure on auction houses, on different experts and others to take one stance or another. And when somebody says, yes, it's real, then clearly, you know, that that's going to give that, give that piece a lot of worth. And I would just say it it was very compelling. I think the last part of it was a little bit last 10 or 15 minutes got a little hokey, but very watchable, really interesting. Also just gives you maybe a different feeling when you watch some of those big watch auctions. I think you'll, you'll have some different things in your mind when you're seeing some of those pieces go for big six or, or seven figure type, uh, sums. So I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. I'll check that out. That kind of, that reminds me, we had a guy on, um, a guy named David Driscoll about 10 months ago 
if you if you want to ever check out our back catalog. And this guy is a uh, a high end retailer for you know uh, a high end like allocated booze, and oh, the parallels okay. are are uncanny. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I think all these worlds are. Well, it's the same world at the end of the day, right? And probably a lot of the same people, even. Yeah, I think but, that's probably that's probably true. Yeah, and it gets into the whole view on um, free ports and bonded warehouses and things like that. So, just just very interesting. Um, really, really good watch. Um, yeah, and then the second one, and this is just more of a PSA, but I I would just say. Uh, and, and it's it's not an original comment, but I did an article the other week about a Grand Seiko, vintage Grand Seiko that I picked up and happened to be a watch in really nice condition. And, you know, Matt, I think that there are plenty of us out there who have advocated on behalf of vintage Grand Seiko or, or Grand Seiko, even when they were, you know, it was modern Grand Seiko and they weren't the big the big brand that they are today. And all I would tell people is that there are really good articles about the history of Grand Seiko and what you should be looking for and, and what to stay away from. Um, they're really great watches. They really are nice pieces. And if you can find them, they are so much less expensive than modern ones. And I think that the modern one, modern ones, in a lot of ways, take directly from these original uh, models. So, I'm I'm sort of rediscovering them, having picked up a few pieces out of Japan recently, and I'm tickled by them. They're they're just really fabulous watches that feel like you're getting something very substantial for the money. I'm familiar with the watch. I've seen the watch. I've I've read the article and I listened to the podcast that you talked to uh, Balash about it, you know, prior to, or maybe when you were working on the article. Yeah, it's a great watch. It's a great piece and a, a good point. There's, if you are interested in the design language, if you like what is on your wrist with a modern Grand Seiko, it translates very well back in time. And if you can find good ones, as you say, you know, they're, they're relatively accessible and it, you know, in terms of price, they're nothing like what they are now. Uh, that's a great idea for sure. And, and I'd commend everybody to, to listen to Mike on the Fratello on air podcast. It's very good. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And yeah, that was just pure. I'm, I'm still excited about a couple pieces I picked up actually a couple King Seikos as well. That I'll write about in the future here. Yeah. Also just as good. So yeah, if you're at all into vintage, kind of like the thought of picking up a really nice high-end vintage dress watch that doesn't cost an arm and a leg, it's a nice place to look. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Mike, thanks a lot. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to hit the stop button. But in the meantime, I'm going to, uh, I've actually moved on to a second beer, by the way. I've got I a- I saw uh, that. Yeah, yeah. So here's to you. Yeah, Thanks cheers. very much. Thank you, Matt. Cheers to you. That'll be our last sip for this episode. Thanks, Mike. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at spiritoftimepodcast at gmail.com.
As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.